Hi, everybody. This video is about what it all comes down to in marriage. And we'll also discuss how Matt felt after his divorce. We'll see you in there. Was the, the, the I mean, in fact, that's all of the work, all of the work in my estimation, in the context of like trust and relationships is accepting responsibility for how what we do or do not do mathematically results in whatever emotional impact it has on another human being. And I think it's reasonable. And I think a lot of men really challenge that idea. And I think it's reasonable for a guy to do that. And I think it's reasonable for anybody, a person. It's not always gender specific. Um, it's okay to say, I don't agree that that incident should affect that person emotionally. And I don't agree to accept responsibility for it. Fine. Don't be married. It's a perfectly valid choice. Do not engage in a marriage where you promise to love, honor, and serve someone all the days of your life. I think that's reasonable. But what, what to me is unreasonable is to promise love, honor, service, fidelity all the days of your life, and then deny that you have any culpability in the pain that your partner experiences because of the things that you do or don't do. And that was me. And, and, and that, what that looks like in my world, in my coaching is I fail to consider my partner when I make decisions. And then when she or he comes to me and communicates that something's wrong, I invalidate through defensiveness or through challenging whatever their intellectual or emotional experience is. And so to me, the way to reverse that, the way to slowly restore trust in a relationship in a general way, in, in, a, in a somewhat non-specific way, admittedly, is this idea of habitually validating and then habitually considering. And it's really nuanced and it, you know, every, every individual and every relationship has different facets to it. Everybody's needs and wants and their path to trust restoration is different depending on what eroded trust in the first place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And now you are doing what with all the stuff you've learned? You know, I started coaching, I think in 18, late 18, and I've really adopted this idea. My divorce and my parents' divorce have defined sort of my emotional experiences in my life. The two most sort of troublesome, painful, life-altering events that ever occurred to me. And so it's really a passion project in a lot of ways. And I really, at the end of the day, I'm trying to leverage this to try to help other people avoid putting their children through what I felt I went through as a kid and experiencing themselves what my wife and I experienced, you know, in my, in my early thirties, when, when our marriage ended, it's just, I believe there's a ton of people out there that are really decent and they really love their partners in like a philosophical way. And they really want to be together forever. And then they're so frustrated by this sort of like constant conflict, constant sense of something being wrong all the time. And everybody believes it's the other person's fault. And I, I, I don't like the word fault. I like the word responsibility. I want everybody to accept responsibility for how what they do impacts the other. And it is my belief, and a lot of men may challenge this, that, that common male behavior in heterosexual relationships tends to be a, a larger contributor to the erosion of trust than common female behavior in, in those same relationships. So I, I, I do put at the feet of men a greater sense of purpose and responsibility. I, I think men in heterosexual relationships are the key to mitigating backslash ending what I refer to as the divorce crisis.
it's a crisis because it affects countless people and because name name one other thing in this world people voluntarily sign up to do where they like know the stakes and then fail at the rate that they fail which i make the case in the book and it's not my work it's uh, a gentleman named tai tashiro who says that seven out of ten marriages fail all the, the ones that end in divorce and then the remaining percentage that are absolutely miserable but still together did you say seven and, out of ten Seven out of 10 is what he says in his research. There's the approximate half that truly end in like a spiritual legal way. And then there's this facet of the remaining 50% that are truly sad, miserable, lonely, depressed, disconnected, but, but still like married in like a legal or church way. And, but I mean, is that, is that a successful marriage? And do we really want people to live like that? There's a, there's a moral debate about like the sanctity of marriage and, there's that part of it. I, I tend not to, I tend not to go too deep on that side of it in my work. Um, I, 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 I don't personally believe that a higher power wants us to suffer within our marriages, that it's some sort of sacrificial thing that we should sign up to be miserable for the rest of our lives. But I, I, I'm, I'm open to people challenging that idea. Well, they, and another thing you're doing is writing. In fact, I remember one of the first probably the second or third visit we had years and years ago I was like so where do you want this writing to take you you know you're you're pretty much just you know working the nine to five and blogging at that point and do you remember what you said I'm, no. assuming, I'm assuming you know what no no I mean I probably waxed poetic about hoping to write a book someday yeah. but I didn't even but, know if you were waxing poetic. I was like, I could see you doing that. I mean, I've read your stuff. I think that's the next. And I think what you said was, I'd love to be able to, you know, write and just help people. So it's, it's true. I'm, I, I really do. I really do have my dream job, which I fail to uh, practice mindful act of gratitude for every day as I should, because I'm very blessed when I think about it. What's so interesting is I didn't have the experience that what I perceive to be this joyful experience of being able to like leave my job and then like, you know, pack up the stuff on my desk and say bye to all of my friends and coworkers and then go live my new adventurous life, you know, writing in coffee shops and doing all these stuff, you know, COVID came along, we all went to work from home and it was fine. But then when I changed jobs, it felt exactly the same the next day as when I had the job like almost nothing changed except I didn't have to like log on to an internet site to like clock in anymore or whatever. Oh yeah. I wish I didn't, I um, wish we'd have been talking around that time. Cause that was kind of in the period that we weren't meeting as. Uh, yeah. And I would have said, Oh, you got to go out and celebrate. Just find something to do. <laughs> go grab a coffee and say, just do something different. You have to commemorate that. Day. Yeah. I was, I'm, I'm somebody who, I mean, I don't know how everybody is. Everybody's going to have a different bent on this, but I'm somebody who was affected when COVID like very first happened and like the world was like changing overnight. And I'm sitting like watching TV and all of a sudden I'm getting breaking news that like the NBA canceled the rest of the season. And then we were finding out Tom Hanks like has COVID and we still thought like everybody was like a threat to die, like instantly, you know, when they get this thing back then we find out that, you know, Tom Hanks is, is hospitalized with it and his wife. Anyway, it was, that, that was like a nervous time. I, I didn't want to go sit with a bunch of people in a coffee shop at that point. Yeah. Oh yeah, I would have said, "Oh, go to drive through and like go sit by a lake or something." Yeah. But, uh, 
worked. It was right. It was exactly like two years ago. Oh wow! And it was still right. We're we're at about we're around the two year anniversary of like yeah. the world changing, and um, that was an interesting time. But anyway, it um, in a lot of ways that experience, my sort of feeling like our way of life change felt so dramatic to me that I had a, a lot of trouble enjoying, you know, the like yeah. the transition. Your own introspection, your own desire to become a healthier man from your own experience. I don't meet men typically that are that way. I meet a lot of men that are like me that are that are kind of what um, the AA big book says, when we became desperate, we became willing. You know, it's not until we became desperate to, to save something, to change something that we finally became willing to do anything. Yes, sir. Uh, I would like to, I'm sorry, Jay, forgive me for interrupting, but I do want to throw myself into that bucket with you guys. I, I, I and the, the, the final few pages of my book, I, I quote, David Foster Wallace talking to author David Lipsky in this long five-day interview they did together. Um, and, 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 and David Foster Wallace was a, a novelist who's not with us anymore. He died by suicide in 2008, and he had a lot of mental health issues. But at one time, he was in a mental institution on Suicide Watch, and he's recounting this event. And they made a film about it called um, The End of the Tour. Um, with uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Jason Siegel. It's, it's, it's a really excellent film. Um, but David Foster Wallace says, you become tremendously, just unprecedentedly willing to examine other alternatives for how to live. When he was talking about this idea of just how sort of like naked, literally and emotionally he felt, you know, in this asylum, which he'd never like been in before. And I sort of metaphorically felt that way after my divorce, my life felt it was really dark and ugly and painful. And so anyway, I don't want to hold myself up as some sort of like noble guy who did a bunch of introspection. Yeah. Everything hurt. And I selfishly wanted backslash needed to not hurt anymore. And that was the motivation. I was not motivated because I was like this really good person who, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I try to be now, I, I try very hard to be mindful of other people's emotional experiences as a result of the things I do or don't do. And to me, that's like the key to all things relationship related is this awareness around the math result of what we do to other people in our sphere of influence, most specifically our romantic partners. And to me, to love is to accept responsibility perpetually, constantly, no breaks for being perpetually considerate, constantly considerate of how what we're doing or not doing is impacting this person. We promised to love. I denied my wife that after promising her forever. Um, and so, you know, she gave me nine years of marriage, 12 years together, and she sacrificed enough uh, within that. So it is, anyway, I just, I don't want anyone to think that I think I'm some like super great dude. Mm. I, it, it also took some sort of comeuppance for me to, to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think that's typically, you know, what what Lori and I refer to is it's got to reach a 10. If it's not a 10 on your pain scale, you know, you can endure a nine, seven, five. You know, I can keep swimming at that point. But once it hits a 10, it's like I need to do something different. 
thanks for joining us. And next time we will be discussing the question, will it take divorce for him to get it? We'll see you then. Bye.